Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. At this point in our reinvestigation of the murders of Stevie, Michael, and Christopher, many of you may have noticed that we have come to a crossroads. To this point, we have been gathering and analyzing existing evidence. We've just recently made our shift into hypothesis development. This is where the track of my investigation and the track of the West Memphis Police Department's investigation head in two different directions. If this were my case to investigate, at this point, I would investigate everyone close to the boys family members, particularly the men in their lives. Then I would work in concentric circles outward from there. The West Memphis PD, on the other hand, jumped from the half-hearted effort at door-to-door canvassing to aiming the focus of their investigation into satanic cult ritual killings, ignoring the family members to the extent that two of the father figures were never even interviewed. If I were in charge of leading this investigation back in 1993, we would never go in the direction that we are about to. But given the circumstances and the history of the case, there's just no way that I can move forward past this point without traveling down the path that the police originally took. It's for that reason that we will be spending several weeks analyzing and assessing the West Memphis Police Department and the Crittenden County DA's Office investigation, arrest, trial, and conviction of three teenagers in connection with these murders. But before we get there, we have a few more things that we need to cover to lay a foundation. This crime was not just investigated once. It has been investigated several times over for the last 24 years during the appeals process. Before we begin to cover the West Memphis Police Department's investigation, I first want to put all of the cards on the table. In today's episode, we will be briefly reviewing the original medical examiner, Dr. Frank Peretti's findings and testimony. Next, we'll compare that opinion with the opinion of two giants in the fields of forensic pathology and forensic odontology. These two men, Dr. Werner Spitz and Dr. Richard Suveron, were brought in as experts to reanalyze the case in 2007. I believe that it is critically important for all of us to have all of the professional opinions on the case before we move on. Now let's begin with the autopsies performed by Dr. Frank Peretti. The key elements that we'll be focusing on today are the following. Did the offender or offenders use a serrated knife to cause multiple scratch marks on the bodies of the victims as well as stab wounds? Were the boys anally raped? Was the emasculation of Christopher Byers done with a knife? And was it done anti-mortem or post-mortem? What were the causes of deaths for the three victims? And lastly, we'll begin today with the time of death estimate given by Dr. Frank Peretti. Dr. Frank Joseph Peretti graduated from medical school in 1984. He then trained in anatomical pathology at Brown University from 1985 to 1988. During that time, he worked as a part-time medical examiner for the state of Rhode Island. He then continued his training at the Chief Medical Examiner's Office in Rhode Island. His training was completed in 1989, four years before the murders, and he moved to Arkansas in 1992. Before we begin our analysis, I want to remind everyone that the information that we're going to cover in today's episode is very hard to listen to. We're going to be talking about very specific and graphic injuries to all three victims. 
Listener discretion is advised. We talked a little bit about Dr. Peretti's time of death estimate in this week's Friday follow-up. As I mentioned, he didn't record any estimated time of death in his reports and made no estimate at the first trial. In the second trial, when pushed on the issue, he gave an estimate of between 1 and 5 a.m. This was based largely on the lividity of the bodies, and Peretti was sure to point out that it's impossible to actually pinpoint a time. After recording the follow-up, the topic of time of death came up in a discussion on our fan page. A listener pointed out that the presence of blowfly larvae in the nose and eyes of the boys would push the time of death back closer to 7 or 8 p.m. on the 5th. From there, Mike and I did quite a bit of research on the topic and found that estimate much more likely to be accurate. For those of you who are not aware of the blowfly's life cycle, I'll give you a brief tutorial based on our research. Blowflies will typically find and lay eggs in a dead body within minutes of death. They will typically lay their eggs in orifices like the mouth, the nose, eyes, and as well as any open wounds. Again, this happens within minutes of death. The flies detect the presence of a dead body and immediately swoop in and lay hundreds of eggs. Once the eggs are laid, it takes around 22 hours for them to hatch into larvae. I've seen where this time could be longer or shorter depending on the temperature and humidity. In this case, the boys' bodies were found in water that is said to be around 60 degrees Fahrenheit. In the most detailed study that I was able to find, it was reported that it will take 22 hours for the eggs to hatch in a 68-degree environment. It will take 18 hours in a 77-degree environment and 16 and a half hours in an 86-degree environment. The process is sped up as the temperatures go up and, of course, slow down when the temperatures go down. So far, I have not found any studies to show how submersion in water will affect the life cycle. Given this information, it would seem that it would take approximately 22 hours after someone dies for the eggs laid by the blowflies to hatch into larvae. The boys' bodies were pulled from the water between 2.30 and 3 p.m. on the 6th. Coroner Kent Hale was called out to the scene at 3.20. He examined the bodies on the scene and pronounced all three boys dead, one of them at 3.58 p.m. and two of them at 4.02 p.m. In his report from his field examination of the bodies, he notes that fly larvae were present in the noses and eyes of all three victims. What we don't know is exactly what time Hale noted the larvae. I haven't been able to track down the time that he cleared the scene, although we do know that everyone left the crime scene at 7.03 p.m. from the dispatch logs. Based on my own personal experience as a firefighter, I've been on the scene of many dead bodies and have witnessed many coroners examining bodies at the scene. I've personally never seen one of these examinations take more than 10 or 15 minutes. This is not an autopsy. They're only noting what they can see without cutting into the body. And then they will also give the official pronouncement that the individual is indeed deceased. So this is what we're left with. At some point on the afternoon of the 6th, after 3.20 p.m. and likely closer to 4 p.m., Kent Hale noted blowfly larvae in the boy's eyes and nose while examining their bodies. We know that blowfly lay their eggs in dead bodies within minutes of death, and it takes somewhere around 22 hours for the eggs to hatch into larvae. Conservatively, if we say that the larvae weren't noticed until as late as 5 p.m., and we count back 22 hours, that would put our time of death at around 7 p.m. If the larvae were discovered at 4 p.m., we would be looking at a possible 6 p.m. time of death. But then when we factor in the blowfly larvae with the last sightings of the boys and allow for some variation in the hatching cycle, and possibly the effect of submersion the water could have on the hatching time, it appears to me that 6.30 p.m. to 8 p.m. is a more appropriate time of death estimate, which would mean that the boys were attacked and killed within minutes of crossing into the woods that evening. Nowhere have I seen any research that would indicate that fly eggs can hatch into larvae in less than 16 and a half hours. And even with that, that would require extremely hot, consistent temperatures, which were not present on the night of May 5th. I believe that that makes Peretti's estimated time of death of 1 to 5 a.m. impossible. Now let's move on to Peretti's opinions of the other key elements that we mentioned earlier. Dr. Frank Peretti was a medical examiner with the Arkansas State Crime Lab in 1993. 
His testimony begins with a hearing outside the presence of the jury where the defense is attempting to extract his opinion as to whether certain scratches on the victim's bodies are consistent with a knife that the prosecution would enter into evidence. Peretti says that the injuries were consistent with those that could be caused by that knife. When questioned as to whether he measured the actual distance between the serrations of the knife and compared them to the measurements of the spacings of the scratches, he says that he believes that he took measurements, but since the skin flexes and folds and moves, it would not be exact. Peretti then goes on to say most serrated knives could have caused the injuries, with the noted exception of a butter knife. When asked directly about the use of a serrated knife, this was his response. From the trial, Attorney Paul Ford, is that your opinion based on a reasonable degree of medical certainty and your opinion that the injury was caused by a serrated knife? Peretti, well, it may be caused, it may be caused by another instrument also, but it has the appearance, you know, of the distance... If you look at it, there's a pattern to it, but it may be caused by another object also. Attorney Ford. Okay, so in your, is it your opinion that this knife could have caused that injury? Peretti. It could have caused this injury. Ford. But anything could have caused it. You don't know what caused that injury. Anything? I'm asking, do you know what caused that injury? Peretti. No. Next, Peretti explains that the injuries to the left side of Stevie Branch's face were caused by a knife. However, he cannot narrow down what type of knife. From the trial, Ford, any knife in the world could cause those. Peretti, that's correct. One frustration that I have in particular with Dr. Peretti's autopsy reports is the fact that he does not describe every injury. Rather, he summarizes them. While this may have been his common practice, it's not one that I'm familiar with. Most of you recall our Season 3 case, the murder of Kiao Gove. Her autopsy report went into great detail to describe every single injury. The length, width, and depth of every stab wound. If it impacted a bone, and if so, how deeply. The directionality of the stab, the conditions of the skin around each wound, which end of the laceration was torn and which was cut. We don't see any of that here and Dr. Peretti explains why in the transcripts. Here, Ford is asking Peretti to point out in the autopsy or in photos which injuries on Stevie Branch were caused by a knife, or in particular, a serrated knife. Peretti's response was, quote, Well, I grouped a lot of them, the smaller ones together, so because otherwise the autopsy report would be 4 to 150 pages. This is something important to note as we move along, and particularly when we compare Peretti's findings to those of Dr. Spitz. How closely did Peretti examine each individual wound? He states that they came from a knife, yet he never documented that in very short autopsy reports. And he explains at trial that the reports would be too long if you went into detail on every one of them. Just to show the contrast, I'm going to read you a description from just one wound on Kiao Gove's autopsy. From the report, Stab Wound Number 3 There is a stab wound on the mid-upper chest centered 14 and three quarters of an inch from the top of the head on the anterior midline. The stab wound measures one and three sixteenths inch in length on the skin. It is oriented with the upper end towards the left and sharp, and the lower end towards the right and blunt, with a width of one sixteenth of an inch. After perforating the skin and the soft tissue of the chest wall, the stab wound nicks the anterior surface of the sternum, but does not perforate the bone. The pathway of the stab wound is from front to back, with no significant left-right or up-down deviation. The maximal depth of penetration is one inch. That is a description of just one of the many wounds found on Kiao Gove's body, and every single injury was described in just as much detail. This is typical, and it's what we are used to seeing when we examine autopsy reports. In contrast, this is an example of Dr. Peretti's wound description, the emasculation of Christopher Byers. Quote, the skin of the penis, scrotal sac, and testes were missing. There was a large gaping defect measuring two and three quarters of an inch by one and a half inches. The shaft of the penis was present and measured two inches in length. The gaping defect was surrounded by multiple and extensive irregular punctate gouging type injuries measuring from an eighth of an inch to three quarters of an inch and had a depth of penetration of a quarter of an inch to a half inch. Some of these wounds showed hemorrhage in the underlying soft tissue. Others did not. In between the thighs were multiple areas of yellow abrasion and skin slippage. The medial aspect of the left thigh showed a yellow abrasion. 
At a glance, you see measurements and the appearance of thoroughness. But when you look closer, you realize that there are necessary details missing. For example, what was the condition of the skin on the edges of the abrasions? And this next bit is awful to talk about, so you may want to bump forward a minute or two. Peretti states that the shaft of the penis is intact, but what's its condition? Was it cut? Skinned? Bruised? Was there hemorrhaging? And what about the head of the penis? Was it present? Missing? What was its condition? He says that the defect is two and three quarters of an inch by one and a half inches. Was it a rectangle? Was it wider than it was tall? Were there jagged or straight edges? Is there tearing or does it appear to be cut? How were the testes removed? What condition were the vas deferens in? They were obviously severed, but did they appear to be cut or torn? Pretty lists, quote, multiple and extensive gouging type injuries surrounding the area. How many were there? Was there any hemorrhaging? I can go on and on, but I think you get the point. Considering the fact that it took nearly a month to get the autopsy report done and sent off to West Memphis PD, it doesn't look like Dr. Peretti devoted much time to the task. In his own words, he didn't want the autopsy to be 150 pages. Now, let's quickly move through the rest of our issues. Number one, sodomy. This will become very important as we move along throughout the case. Dr. Peretti notes that there are no injuries present on either of the boys consistent with them being sodomized. Swab's first spermatozoa also came back negative. At the trial, he stated that while there was no evidence of sodomy, he could not rule it out as a possibility. In a recorded phone call with defense attorneys before the trial, Peretti explains the sodomy situation. Here's a section of the transcript of his conversation with Robin Wadley, where they're discussing the prosecutor's opening statement. Dr. Peretti, if someone, especially in a young child, I think they're penetrated, okay, with a penis, I would expect to find injuries. Wadley, okay. Peretti, that's what I told him. Wadley, okay, because it's my understanding, doctor, that John Fogelman told another attorney on his word of honor that these boys were sodomized. Peretti, I don't know how he can say they were sodomized. I mean, I told him that. I told him there were no tears, lacerations, as I told you, and I told him the explanation why the anus might be dilated. Wadley, doctor, do you think the prosecutor in this case can stand in front of a jury and in good faith tell the jury that they expect to, that the proof would be that these boys were sodomized? Peretti, I would say not in good faith. That's his decision, not mine. Wadley, absolutely, yes, sir. Peretti, I mean, I told him what I told you. I don't want to be in the middle of this. Wadley, I'm not, no sir, and I'm not putting you there either. I got concerned because I thought we took some fairly copious notes the other day and I thought we had fully understood what you had told us. And I wanted to make sure that I had not recorded something on my paper incorrectly concerning this issue of the boys being sodomized. Peretti, no, there is no evidence of anal rectal trauma. Okay, I mean, could they have put a finger up there? Yes. Could they have put a dildo in there and not leave an injury? Yes. Could they have been penetrated after death and not have any injuries? That's a possibility, but I would expect to see some tearing. See what I'm saying? Wadley. Yes, sir. Okay. Peretti. But I never said that they were sodomized. I never said that. You know, you read my report. It is clearly, read the opinions in there. Wadley. And the issue there concerning dilation in that... You're not in any way attempting to make an inference that there was sodomy. Peretti. No. It is a possibility, sure. Anything's possible. But there is no evidence of trauma. Later in the conversation, Peretti seems to point towards the police as the source of all this sodomy talk. From the transcript, Dr. Peretti. I mean, the whole thing stands from when the police went and told him they were sodomized. The prosecutor. You see what I'm saying? This is before when I first did the autopsy. You see what I'm saying? I haven't talked in detail with the prosecutors. They have been down here once, but we haven't really talked in detail. To summarize, Dr. Peretti does not see any evidence of sodomy, but would not rule it out because, as he puts it, quote, anything's possible. Next, let's move on to the emasculation of Christopher Byers. 
At trial, Peretti was asked if it would be a difficult procedure to cause this injury. The doctor explains that it would require a great amount of skill and an extremely sharp knife, like a scalpel. He was asked point-blank if he himself, with all of his medical training, could perform such a procedure in the crime scene conditions. Peretti concedes that he doesn't think that he would be able to do it. Nonetheless, his position stands that Christopher Byers' testicles and scrotum were removed, and the shaft of his penis was skinned with a sharp knife before he died. Lastly, let's talk about the cause of death for each of the victims. In the autopsies, Peretti listed the cause of death for Stevie Branch and Michael Moore as drowning. For Christopher Byers, he listed the cause as multiple injuries. And then at trial, he testified that Christopher Byers actually bled to death from his injuries. These are Dr. Frank Peretti's findings. A knife was used to stab the boys repeatedly. Byers and Branch were scratched with a serrated knife, and Christopher Byers' emasculation was performed by a very sharp knife anti-mortem. He doesn't see any evidence of sodomy, yet he can't rule it out, and that Stevie and Michael died from drowning while Chris Byers bled to death. Those were his official opinions, and that's what the jury heard at trial. Now, After a quick break here for the ads, we're going to see what Dr. Warner Spitz had to say about all of these findings. Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Dr. Werner Spitz was born in Germany in 1926. He completed his undergrad studies from 1946 to 1950, then attended medical school in Jerusalem from 1950 to 1953. He then completed an internship and his residency at the Hadassah Medical School from 1953 to 1959, and then he moved to the United States where he worked as a research fellow of forensic pathology at the University of Maryland for two years. From 1961 on, Dr. Spitz served in the capacity of a medical examiner and professor for several decades. Most notably, he served as the chief medical examiner for Macomb County here in Michigan for 32 years, from 1972 to 2004. At the time of the murders, he had been a chief medical examiner for over 21 years. And by the time he analyzed this case, he had that full 32 years of experience behind him. His list of board certifications and awards are way too long to go over here, but you can view them all on our website. He worked with the CIA on the Kennedy assassination, consulted on the O.J. Simpson case, the John JonBenet Ramsey case, and many, many more notable cases. During his time serving as the chief medical examiner in Macomb County, he had also been working as a professor at Wayne State University School of Medicine in the Department of Pathology for 20 years by the time this murder occurred. And Dr. Spitz literally wrote the book on forensic pathology. In 1973, he published his textbook, Medical Investigation of Death, Guideline for the Application of Pathology to Crime Investigations, a textbook still widely used in the field today, following many updates. Dr. Frank Peretti actually would have studied Dr. Spitz's textbook when he was learning forensic pathology 15 years later. Dr. Spitz's list of publications at the time his CV was written in 2007 included over 90 of his writings. Werner Spitz is hand down, indisputably, the most well-respected and world-renowned forensic pathologist on the planet, even to this day. He has consulted on and conducted thousands of autopsies, which is exactly why when the defense team was seeking an expert to review Dr. Peretti's findings in 2007 during the appeals process, they would settle for none other than Dr. Werner Spitz. 
The second expert that the defense brought in to examine the medical evidence was a Dr. Richard Suveron. Dr. Suveron was born in 1936 in Washington, D.C. and earned his undergrad degree at the University of Miami. He then graduated from Emory University School of Dentistry in 1960 with a DDS degree. He went on to serve as the chief forensic odontologist for the Miami-Dade County Medical Examiner's Office. Suveron has consulted on many high-profile cases around the country, including the Eastern Airlines Flight 401 crash, the case of the state of Louisiana versus Anthony Kiko, and even the Marv Albert case. But most notably, Dr. Suveron was able to analyze and identify the bite marks on the notorious serial killer Ted Bundy case. Suveron's analysis actually led to the prosecution of Ted Bundy. Dr. Suveron was certified by the American Board of Forensic Odontology in 1976. The time of the murders, he'd been working as a forensic odontologist for 17 years. And by the time he was asked to analyze evidence in this case in 2007, his experience in the field had then spanned to 41 years. He's been published many, many times, including his contribution in the textbook titled Bite Mark Evidence, which was published in 2005. Dr. Suveron contributed to Chapter 15, Animal Bites, and Chapter 18, Patterns, Lesions, and Trauma Mimicking Bite Marks. Like Spitz, Dr. Suveron is respected by his peers as one of the best, if not the best, forensic odontologists in the country. In 2007, both doctors spoke at a press conference where they summarized their findings in this case. You're going to hear a reference made to a grapefruit in this clip. We'll get into this in more detail later, but what Dr. Suveron is talking about is the closing argument of Prosecutor John Fogelman at trial where he scraped a grapefruit with the back of a knife that was in evidence and stated to the jury that the marks on the fruit were the same as the scratch marks on the bodies of Stevie Branch and Christopher Byers. Here's a clip from the press conference. Uh, Dr. Spitz and Dr. Suveron are now going to speak for a few minutes about their findings as to the nature and causes of these injuries. Uh, one other note before they do begin, we think it's appropriate in this setting to uh, present only very limited photographic views uh, of the uh, injuries uh, in order to illustrate the expert findings. Um, but keep in mind that Dr. Spitz's findings, Dr. Suveron's findings, the finding of every other expert we have is based on a review of hundreds of autopsy and crime scene photographs and the re most relevant of those photographs uh, and other materials are included in the federal filing that we submitted uh, this, this past Monday. And with that, I will turn it over to Dr. Spitz to be followed then immediately by Dr. Suveron. Good morning. I analyzed, as you heard, a lot of pictures. I analyzed a lot of written material. It is my opinion, or the following are my opinions. Injuries on the body surface of all the three victims, three boys, including the emasculation of Chris Byers, were produced by animals after death. None of the injuries were caused during life and none were caused by a serrated knife or any knife for that matter. These are not sharp injuries. They have characteristics and those characteristics are not identifiable or synonymous with um, a knife or any other sharp force uh, type injury. The uh, uh, type of animals, there are small animals and large animals. The uh, spacing of the uh, wounds uh, that um, uh, two of the pictures I have brought here are not consistent with uh, the serrations on the skin. When a dog or other carnivorous animal attacks a body, after death or before death sometimes, they scrape the body. They um, move their claws on the body and try to bring the body closer to them. They do this several times. 
And you have here two of the victims that have the same identical injury and they, the spacing and the configuration of those injuries is not compatible with a serrated knife such as this or for that matter any knife. I might say to you in a, uh, in a, uh, just a couple of words, when these pictures first came to me, I couldn't understand what the, this issue was all about because it was so obvious that these are uh, uh, animal product and uh, I so advised the attorneys. It took maybe seconds to make that observation. And of course it took a lot longer to read the material and to identify detail but as far as uh, satanic cult type injuries I failed to see those in any of these these victims. There were obvious claw marks, there were, um, uh, on, on all the uh, victims, there was no evidence of sexual abuse, there was no e evidence anywhere of uh, anal uh, penetration or mutilation or any way you want to call that. Um, there was no, no other abnormalities on the bodies that would in any way uh, conform with that with which was alleged to have occurred. Uh, I asked uh, just a few minutes before uh, the st meeting started, I asked uh, Dennis Redden if uh, he would allow uh, uh, you to view other pictures. If you, he said, if you so wish, then uh, he will be glad to show them to you. Thank you very much. Good morning. Uh, my name is Richard Suveron. Uh, I'm the Chief Forensic Dentist for uh, Miami-Dade County, Florida and have been uh, in that capacity since 1967. Um, I have published uh, in Dr. Spitz's book, also in a handbook on uh, bite mark identification, uh, the degradation that occurs to humans uh, by animals. Uh, obviously in, in my area uh, we see quite a bit of uh, degradation from sharks uh, barracudas, alligators, which uh, are not involved obviously in this case. However, uh, we see degradation from other animals such as dogs, number one cause, uh, deaths that have resulted from dog bites uh, as recently as this year in, in uh, Naples, Florida. Uh, a jogger was uh, attacked and killed by pit bulls. Uh, so, uh, I've had some experience in that regard. Um, additionally, the bite mark evidence that uh, I've dealt with, uh, obviously, has been uh, particularly in, in cases uh, like Ted Bundy, was human bites on, on other humans. Uh, in this case, we're dealing with animal bites on humans. Uh, my opinion uh, that these bite marks, uh, and I concur with Dr. Spitz, uh, that you don't have to be a rocket scientist to look at these things and know that these are bite marks and that they occurred post-mortem after death. Uh, the area that I'm going to be involved with is to, I think all of you saw the experiment with the grapefruit where the knife was hit into the grapefruit and said, see these spaces? They matched this knife which was, quote, hidden in a lake. Uh, that's their job, is to be as inflammatory as possible. That knife was hidden in the lake. Well, they found a knife in the lake that's a Rambo knife, that's what I call it. That's the knife. And you don't have to be a rocket scientist or a forensic dentist or anything else to look at that serrations on the back of that knife and see these marks on this, these two human beings and saying that that back end of that knife made these marks. I mean, give me a break. That, that is the most ridiculous statement that I've ever heard anybody make and to sell that to a jury is unconscionable in my opinion. These are scratch marks from claws from some type of an animal, a carnivore as Dr. Spitz says. The genital injuries which we cannot show you because they're so graphic and so disgusting that it's not for television. 
I have a case in which that same type of injury is documented and occurred on an individual and is reported in a textbook. And animals will go for the genital areas. Animals will go for areas where there's blood. So in this particular case, in my area of expertise, number one, there are no knife wounds on the body. Dr. Spitz didn't say this, but he pointed out yesterday, there are no stab wounds. If somebody's going to use a knife, what do you do with a knife? You run around and scrape with it like this? I mean, come on. You stab with a knife. There are no stab wounds on these by Any one of the three have no stab wounds. So this knife didn't cause any injuries. No knife caused any injuries. And the, the injuries to the body were post-mortem done by animals. Thanks. The full, detailed report from both Dr. Spitz and Dr. Suveron are up on our website if you would like to read them in detail. What you just heard here was merely a summary of their findings. To break things down simply, two of the world's most respected experts in their fields came to these conclusions. The cause of death of all three victims was drowning. Nearly all of the injuries on the bodies, with the exception of the blunt force trauma to the head, were post-mortem and caused by animal predation. Christopher Byers was emasculated post-mortem by animals. And there was no knife involved in this crime whatsoever, and none of the boys had any injuries from any knife. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Get ahead of the postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. These expert findings are in direct conflict with Dr. Peretti's findings and continue to this day to be hotly debated by those who maintain the guilt of the three who were convicted. Most who agree with Dr. Spitz and Dr. Suveron's conclusions blame the injuries on the boys' bodies on turtles, another claim that is hotly debated. So before we close the day, I want to address two more questions. Number one, were there actually turtles present at the discovery site? Number two, would turtles feed on dead bodies in the water? First, we'll address the presence of turtles at the discovery site. Those who are opposed to this theory will often make the argument that the searchers and the crime scene investigators didn't make any note of seeing any turtles at the crime scene, thus indicating that turtles didn't live there. But for anyone who has ever spent any amount of time near a body of water containing turtles, this would be no surprise. Turtles are notoriously skittish. Just try to get close to one sometime. As soon as they realize you're there, they will quickly disappear into the water not to be seen again. So what evidence do we have that there were in fact turtles present in the area? Well, to begin with, the area where the boys were found was known to the locals as Turtle Hill. So there's that. And maybe the name doesn't mean anything, but I think we find pretty definitive evidence of turtle activity in this affidavit written by Christopher Byers' brother, Ryan Clark. From the affidavit. At the time of Chris's death, I was 13 years old. When I was about 8 or 9 years old, I was in Robin Hood Hills almost every day. I stopped going there as much when I was between 10 and 12. When I did go into Robin Hood Hills, I usually entered at 14th Street and Goodwin Avenue. Sometimes, however, I entered in a different location, carrying my bike over a pipe crossing into the area. When I went into Robin Hood Hills, I often swam in the water beneath the pipe crossing. I also swam in the ditch where my brother and other victims of the crime were found in May of 1993. I saw alligator snapping turtles very often when I was in Robin Hood Hills. 
A couple of times before my brother's death, I pulled alligator snapping turtles out of the same ditch where his body was found. My friends and I also caught the turtles in other areas of Robin Hood Hills. We usually caught the alligator snapping turtles with a crawfish drag or by grabbing them by the tail. We would then put them in a swimming pool and try to get them to fight. The alligator snapping turtles we caught were dangerous and large, about as big as a cooler. My friend Scotty Long once caught such a turtle with a head as big as a baseball. Signed, Sean Ryan Clark. I think we can rule out the idea that there were no turtles in the area. Clearly, there were, which is exactly what you would expect to find in any body of water in that climate. So in my opinion, there were certainly turtles present in the water at that time. So next, I want to talk about our last point, which is how would the turtles feed in that area? When I first started investigating this case and I started reading all the medical evidence, I wanted to know how turtles actually feed in the water. I also wanted to know how long it would take them to find a dead body, how much damage could they do in 18 hours, the amount of time the boys were submerged in the water, in what areas of the body they would attack first, and if three bodies were put into a flowing stream, which one would suffer the most damage from predation. There have been many experiments conducted by many people over the years on this matter, but Mike, Shane, and I decided to conduct our own and see for ourselves. Now, it's important to point out that the actual drainage ditch where the boys' bodies were found doesn't exist anymore. As we've mentioned before, that area has been filled in by dirt, and it's just an open field at this point. So we conducted our experiments in the next best place we could think of, which was right at the pipe bridge, which was about 30 to 40 feet away from where the boys' bodies were found. So for our first experiment, we wanted to know, would turtles attack a dead body in the water? So for this experiment, we just bought a whole chicken, tied it to a rope, threw it into the water over the bridge, and left and came back about five hours later. When we got back to the bridge, we saw turtles scatter everywhere from the area around where the chicken was in the water. And we'll try to put a YouTube video together at some point, showing all the video footage we got of all of these experiments. So then I went down to the bridge, and like I said, it had been about five hours, and I pulled the rope up, and at the end of it, there was nothing left but some chicken bones. The turtles had just completely destroyed the chicken. They ate every bit of flesh off of it. So next we wanted to know if we put a bigger animal, something closer to the size of a human being in the water, what kind of damage would be done over 18 hours, which was the length of time that the boys were in the water, assuming the time of death that we discussed earlier around 7 or 8 p.m. So we went to a local meat market and bought a 62-pound whole pig. We rigged up a series of posts and ropes and submerged the pig into the water where it was suspended in the same way that the boys' bodies were. We also set up GoPro cameras both under the water and above because turtles won't come out and feed if they see anybody around, so we wanted to capture some footage of them actually feeding. When we came back 18 hours later, there were chunks taken out of the pig all over the place. It was easy to visibly see that the turtles had attacked the ears, the eyeballs, the lips and especially around the groin area and the inner thighs. And those areas ended up being filled with bite marks that looked exactly like the bite marks all over the inner thighs of Christopher Byers. We then went back and reviewed our underwater footage to watch how the turtles feed. This, perhaps, was the most revealing part of the experiment. Every turtle that approached the pig would swim up to it, try to find some type of soft flesh, latch onto it with its beak, Now remember, the turtles are suspended and floating in the water, and then they would use their massive, sharp claws to push against the body to pull their beak back to tear the flesh away. As soon as we saw this footage, we knew immediately where all the scratch marks came from on the bodies of the victims. Every attack, every bite they took, they pushed and pushed with their front feet, leaving massive, gouging scratch marks in the pig. So at that point, we had determined there were definitely turtles in the area, 
it wouldn't take them very long at all to find a dead body in the water and feed on it. We also had a pretty good idea of how they attacked and how they fed and what the injuries caused by that would look like, which in my opinion were all consistent with the injuries found on the three victims. So next we were left with the question of why Christopher Byers was emasculated and why Stevie Branch's face was tore up so badly when Michael Moore had very few injuries compared to the other two. Theories have been thrown around for decades that all of the injuries on the boys' faces and the emasculation of Christopher Byers indicated that the offender or offenders had a personal cause against that individual. When the fact of the matter is, I don't see any evidence that any of the victims were a preferred victim, meaning I don't think any one was attacked more severely than the others. So if our theory is all these injuries were turtle predation, then why were those two predated on so much more badly than Michael Moore? Well, Shane Yoder had a theory. The water was dark and murky. The only way for the turtles to know that there was something in the water was by smell. And the smell would travel downstream. In the position of the bodies, the furthest north and upstream was Michael Moore. 27 feet downstream from him was Stevie Branch. And about five feet downstream from him was Christopher Byers. Christopher Byers' body is the first body that the turtles would have come to if they were following the smell upstream. And therefore, it only makes sense that he would suffer the most damage. And unlike Michael Moore, Stevie Branch's body was right next to Christopher Byers. Meaning any animals that were following the smell in the water upstream would have come to two boys in the water and would have had plenty to feed on without traveling another 27 feet upstream to get to Michael Moore. This was our theory, and so we decided to conduct another experiment. This time, we would get two chickens, and we would throw them on either side of the pipe bridge, about 20 feet apart. We put cameras up and left the area for about three hours and came back to see what we would find. And Much like we had predicted, when we came back, we saw about 10 turtles scatter away from the downstream chicken while just one was feeding on the upstream chicken. We have photos that we'll get up on the website where you can see the difference between the two. The chicken that was upstream had only a few bite marks on it, while the chicken that was on the downstream side was mutilated just like the first one we'd put in the water. There was almost nothing left but bones. And then, when we were reviewing our footage, we found out that turtles aren't the only predators in the water. All three of us were shocked when we were reviewing the footage when an alligator gar, over two feet long, swam up to our pig when it was suspended in the water. For those of you that don't know, an alligator gar is a long, powerful fish that has a mouth lined with razor-sharp teeth that look very much like an alligator. And that's not even mentioning all the crayfish or crawdads that are crawling around in that water and any of the smaller fish. So by conducting these experiments, I feel we've proven a number of things. For anyone that says that there is no animal predation on the boys, I think that they are absolutely kidding themselves. They may want to make an argument that it's not all animal predation, but I feel that we can conclusively say at this point that no dead body put into that water could have made it for 18 hours without at least some predation activity, especially in the springtime when the snapping turtles are the most active. When you consider that the boys were bleeding from some of their head wounds, it is inconceivable to think that they would lay in that water with their scent and blood flowing downstream into the main bayou for 18 hours and no turtles or fish or crawfish would swim up and begin feeding on them. It's just not possible. And I'm also confident in saying that I believe the extreme damage done to both Christopher Byers and to Stevie Branch, as opposed to the limited damage done to Michael Moore, is consistent, again, with animal predation as they feed upstream. And I also concur with Dr. Werner Spitz's findings that the scratch marks on the body were not caused by a serrated knife, as Dr. Peretti stated, but what they are consistent with is turtle claw marks in the process of them feeding by latching onto the bodies with their beaks 
and then pulling back by pushing onto the body with their claws. This episode is going to be the episode where we start to create a lot of controversy. I know that a lot of you listening right now are going to adamantly disagree with just about everything I just said. And that's okay, and we can have those discussions. I want to request once again that as we move forward and opinions start to divide in different directions, that any discussions on the fan page or the Truth and Justice page or on our Twitter feed remain respectful and civil. And I'm happy to share as many of those discussions as possible in next week's Friday follow-up. But at this point, we're just two weeks away from getting into the investigation, arrest, and conviction of the three who were ultimately accused of this crime. Between now and then, we have one more episode where we're going to do something similar to what we did today, only this time, we're going to look at new experts' opinions, along with my own opinion of an analysis and a profile of the crime scene. Next week on Truth and Justice. Truth and Justice is a production of NBI Studios. Michael Bussing is our executive producer and Shane Yoder is our sound engineer. All music for the show was created, composed, and scored by PutThemInASong.com, who also mixed and mastered this episode. We'll say thank you to our transcription team, Anna Dindorf, Sarah Mueller, Britta Bliss, and Stephanie McConnell. And also thank you to Katie Ross of InTandemDesigns.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website. Our Season 5 logo was created by Shane Yoder of PutThemInASong.com. Over the next week, please stay in touch either by sending us a voicemail to 269-224-2833, which you can call any time of day, 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. You can send us an email to theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page, get involved in the discussion on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page, or you can follow along on Twitter at TruthJusticePod. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been Truth and Justice. Thank you.